0: Folks, I don't know whether you realize this, but it's Saturday and it's 1 o'clock. It's my favorite time of the week. And uh, at the risk of sounding like a used car salesman, I'm excited to be here, folks. Loving every minute of it. In the studio with us, joining us, sipping on his coffee right now, Mr. Gord trainer Gordo?
1: Hello, Drew. <laughs>
0: you sound like a puppet. <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, that's not too bad. Could yeah. be worth. Yeah. Worse. Worth, worth, <laughs> could be worth.
0: Uh, apparently, the coffee's coffee a little has hot. My mouth, yes. yes. Canadians in their uh, in their coffee, it's a bit of an issue. Filtered sand water, addictive substances. Be a slave to nothing. I say, Gord. What say you? If you're gonna be a slave to something, coffee's other, th- other good than thing, Jesus. Yeah, I'll listen coffee. to you. You're so spiritual. No, I'm, not, I'm not a slave to coffee, but I do like the flavor. Yeah. I'm glad you like the flavor. Well, listen now, folks, we have got a great, great show lined up for you. That's why I spend all week doing it, because I want it to be a great, great show. And I want to let you know what's happening. In a a couple of minutes, we're going to be interviewing Mr. Gary Berghoff. And uh, many of you will know Gary from uh, his his performance on MASH. He uh, played Radar. Radar O'Reilly. Radar O'Reilly. And, okay, this is going to sound like a suck-up, but I don't have him on, on the on the phone yet here. but Well, you have him on the phone, but I don't have him on the show. I actually thought he was quite possibly the best actor on that show.
1: Uh, yeah, good call. He was very, very good, and, and I think under underrated, and sort of he played one of those
0: characters that doesn't really shine, but, you know, it's uh, definitely a great, great, great yeah, actor. Yeah, yeah. No. Listen, uh, let's move on to what I think is going to be the highlight of today's show, because... Uh, well, to be quite honest, I'm a fan. Me too. I'm a fan. And uh, for those of you who are, again, unfamiliar with Mr. Gary Berghoff, what, are you living in a cave for the last 20 years? Well, Mash. there could be some young people out there. that. Are... But even young people love MASH. My son Unex- loves it. My oh, son, really? he was 15 years old, just went to Walmart. I'm sorry, he went to Walmart. But anyway, he went there and uh, bought the party pack of MASH, like uh-huh. uh, 25 episodes. Awesome. He loves awesome. it. Awesome. So, all the way from Florida. Mr. Gary Burkhoff. Gary, thank you for joining us on The Drew Marshall Show.
2: Hello, Drew. It's uh, it's so nice to talk to you. I'd like to extend my love and respect to uh, all our good neighbors, our American neighbors to the north.
0: Have you spent much time up here, Gary, at all, in Canada?
2: I have. I've uh, had many appearances up there. I've always been treated with the greatest of hospitality. Wonderful, wonderful people.
0: We're good people. It's usually because we're loaded on sugar from donuts and, uh, and high on coffee. You is know.
2: that is that right? Yeah, that's the only reason we're nice. <laughs> that's funny, I'm sipping, I'm sipping some right now.
0: <laughs> well, that's good. Well, listen, Gary, let's get stuck right into it. And I, I guess in doing the research on you, the first thing that I was blown away by is that you are 61 years old. Is that right? Uh
1: mm-hmm. huh.
0: That's right. You know, because because you know, you and I don't go bowling every Friday night, so I've never seen, <laughs> I, I've never met you. You know, we just had a nice chat last week, which was was great. By the way, thanks for that time. My
1: pleasure.
0: But, uh, you know, for me to think of radar as 61 years old, I just kind of go, whoa, you know, that's weird.
2: Well, radar isn't 61 years old. He's still uh, 18 to 20. Oh, good call. Very good call, Gary Berghoff, 61 years old.
0: Yes, 1943. you were born there. You had your uh, your mom was a professional dancer and uh, producer of various theater productions. Mm-hmm. Um, was she the one that got you into performing? Like, were, were you closer to your mom and your father because of the whole common interest in arts? Or? No,
2: I was very close to both of them. But uh, but in terms of the arts, I think my mother was the creative force in the family. Right. My father was a. Uh, uh, I guess you could call him an industrialist. He was vice president in charge of manufacturing of the Ingram Clock Company, oh. which was an old American clock company, probably 150 years old at the time in the 1940s and 50s. Um, but my mother had me on the stage when I was uh, five or six years old, uh, doing some, you know, local theater.
0: Did you want to do it, or were you? No, I wanted to. Yeah, I, I, it was. A... You were a ham,
1: were you?
2: Well, I, I had a passion. And I 'll tell you why. Um, at first, it was kind of a fun thing to do, and I, you know, because I saw my mother doing it, and I saw her directing other young people, and I wanted to be there, and Of course, she was very willing to let me do it. But it was uh, an experience where a thousand people uh, comprising the audience that I first appeared uh, before from our community, people that I was beginning to know at that very young age is having differences of opinions, being different uh, politically and different uh, in terms of their racial backgrounds and so on and so forth. Um, all these people with all these differences, all laughing at the same thing at the same time. Yeah,
0: that's a good thing, isn't it? It's a
2: really good thing. It made me feel like I was part of one big family and one big uh, community. And it made me really want more. It made me feel safe. and So laughter... Uh, to me, was a great, uh, a great common denominator.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah, and a melting pot of of uh, enormous proportions. I understand also that you are a baseball fan. What's your favorite team?
2: You know what? I I, I hesitate to say because oh. it seems to be more volatile than politics. But. <laughs> But you you you, t- you tend to root for the people. I'll t- let me let me give you a little story. Okay. All right. When I was when I was six years old, uh, my brother and I uh, came to Florida to live with our grandparents in St. Petersburg, which was the winter home of the teams. You know the spring training. Yes. Yes.
0: Yes. We know it well because that's where the Toronto Blue Jays go, of course.
2: Okay. Well, um, my grandfather knew somebody uh, at one of the fields, and he brought us down there with a couple of uh, balls to be. Baseballs to be autographed, and and uh, and as soon as he walked out onto the field with us, uh, this funny-looking guy he looked like Popeye came over and he said, "Oh, Bill, how you doing? Said, Fine. Uh, here, let me call the boys over." Well, that Popeye-looking guy was a guy by the name of Casey Stengel, and the team that he called off the field to autograph our balls was the New York Yankees. Really? And it was the classic New York Times.
0: Oh, you are kidding me. With
2: DiMaggio and and Phil Rizzuto and Yogi Berra and uh, the whole bunch. The downside to the story was my grandfather, who was a Scotch blood, bought me a rubber ball. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because I was the youngest, <laughs> my brother got the got the league ball, <laughs> and so his still exists. Oh, worth, I hate
0: when that happens. It's
2: worth around ten <laughs> thousand dollars. The ink all disappeared on my rubber ball in about four weeks. <laughs>
0: that is a very very sad story yeah, yeah. oh my goodness all right so that's I'm,
2: why i have such empathy for my youngest son because he he always
1: gets the short end of the stick just like i
0: oh do. yeah yeah that's right now i you're also into fishing and i i mean i love fishing love it i've got a good friend who is who's done some a lot of fishing up in alaska have you been there yet to fish
2: i've never been to alaska and it's top on my list i just hear it's a wonderful gorgeous
0: but place. but you fish you fish everywhere
2: I do, uh, but it's my son, my oldest son, who who, who aspires to be the uh, uh, pro bass fisherman. He's he's into it big time. Really? He's eighteen years old, and he's already networking out there to uh, you know start his career as a pro bass fisherman.
0: Wow, that'll be neat. Now tell me about Chum Magic.
2: Well, Chum Magic was an invention of mine, which uh, it's actually a fish attracting device. Well, like so many inventions, you know. Uh, um, Uh, One great inventor by the name of Thomas Edison once uh, was asked what was the greatest invention, and he said a blade of grass. Uh, Like so many inventions, it was taken from nature. Um, I observed uh, while fishing uh, in the Florida Keys, off the coast of the Florida Keys, uh, that every time I saw something floating out there, if I trolled around it, uh, I would run into game fish. And the reason for that was that bait fish are always looking for shade, uh, it protects them from their scales, uh, the, the sun sh- uh, reflecting off their scales and attracting game fish. And so they're always looking to duck into something uh, that provides shade so that that won't happen. And so I invented chum magic, which is essentially a small surfboard-like uh, object that has a chum basket in the middle. Chum, for those who don't know, is a chopped fish, which is frozen into a block. And And if you put it in the basket, it slowly dissolves in, in the water when you place it in the water, and That's the little, brilliant. the little pieces of fish come out and and attract uh, all the bait fish in the area. but the the board itself, which is sent out on a on a line behind your anchored boat into the current and tied off about forty feet behind the boat, the board itself provides that shade. So here you have food and shelter. For the bait fish and they form a big school around it in about 45 minutes and the game uh, or rather 30 minutes and 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 in about 45 minutes the game fish start to come in after that big school of bait fish oh
0: you are a thinker that is brilliant
2: so um so Chum magic was born in 1991 and uh it is not on the market today because i i took it off on the market i'm just sitting on the patents right now um
0: that must hurt Listen, you know, uh, Gary, one of the things I admired about your work as a performer. Is that in an industry known for its obsession with the, you know, the perfect body image? <laughs> right. Well, no, no. I'm going to put my foot in it here, but look. You, no, no,
2: no, not at all. You, I, I laugh because because
1: you're right.
0: You broke through those aesthetic barriers, and no one ever even noticed the fact that you were you were born with fingers in your left hand slightly smaller than normal. And you, but you hid that so well from the audience. Well, how, I didn't how
2: did not hide it? That's that's the wrong word. Uh, that's been dantied around. I don't want people who are physically different to think that i was ashamed of it uh anyway okay that's a good Uh, point i i i did ask uh to work with the uh, camera crew to exclude it from shots because i didn't want it to obscure what the scene was about i mean it's just a simple practical thing uh but i was not uh, ashamed of it and i didn't hide it i don't even think in terms of labeling uh people who have some kind of physical what you might call abnormalities it's all to me it's all psychological yep. the only handicaps there are are psychological they're in your head not parts of your other parts of your body
0: well said well said folks we're on the phone with uh, mr gary berghoff most of you would probably know his radar from mash uh, uh, gary uh, prior to mash though you were a regular on the don not show
2: yes A great and wonderful man, by the way.
0: What what memories do you have of working with, you know, the incredible Mr. Limpet or Barney Uh, Fife?
2: uh, I was working uh, with a man who is very different from the character he plays. He's a very dignified, very genuine, kind, uh, and loving man, and warm. Hmm. Uh, And uh, those are the main memories of just working with this warm individual who who became an instant... uh, a friend and I, I, I deeply regret not being closer to him uh, now because uh, uh, you know he lives on the west coast. They live on the east coast, and you know how that that is. Mm. But he, this is a great man and a and a very very talented man, uh, m- much more talented I think than his characterizations uh, revealed uh, to the public. I mean, the man could do Shakespeare. He's a very very talented man
0: now that's something i'd like to see don Knotts doing shakespeare well
2: you, you, you'll never see it because of the because of the imagery that uh uh you know is uh
0: well his previous characters have it, pipecast him in so in such a way that there's no way he would be accepted well, as in a
2: shakespearean probably, role that's probably true in yeah. the same way that you know i might not
1: be yeah, but no.
2: uh, unfortunately that's the nature of the mass media uh You portray a character so successfully, and what you're doing is, in in one sense, and I don't mean to be cynical about this, I'm deeply grateful uh, for my time on television, but uh, you you, you essentially work your, you you do so well at creating a character that you work your way out of uh, creating any more.
0: Definitely. Now listen, you were nominated for an Emmy, I think every year you played Radar on M.A.S.H.,
2: Actually, I was nominated more than every year. Uh, that's, uh, that's an odd thing. Yeah, how does that work? For the trivia buffs out there. <laughs> uh, I was actually uh, nominated nine times for eight years. Uh, in other words, one year the Academy split in two, and the, in New York claimed to be the Academy and Los Angeles claimed to be the Academy, and both coast nominated me so was well, actually nominated nine times
0: but you know what i could win a lot of cash on that information right there well, you know.
2: nobody knows it but me
0: well there we go there we go <laughs> uh, well now in ni- is it 1979 you got best supporting actor in a no, comedy series no,
1: 1976
0: 1977 season right okay all right but you apparently you didn't show up for the ceremony
2: it was the only time i didn't show up and that was the time i won it
1: yeah, well, and, I, and
2: it's, it, it really breaks my heart because you know every actor dreams of standing up there with his little speech and you know and, and thanking everybody and, including you know the, the local dog catcher for for his career <laughs>
0: yeah. so why did you not show up to your own award ceremony
2: because i was fishing <laughs> and and, and the, are the, you kidding me yeah and the and the the most heartbreaking <laughs> part of it was I didn't catch any fish oh,
0: no. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It reminds me of that scene out of uh, Grumpy Old Men 2, I think, where uh, the father-in-law, I think it might have been, oh, it was Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau. Instead of going to the wedding, they skipped out fishing, trying to catch the big catfish, you know.
2: Oh,
0: oh yeah. Oh, that's classic. By, uh, the way, yeah. by
2: the way, Jack Lemmon was w- another one of those dear and warm human beings that, uh, you know, did Hollywood justice. Really, uh, he's a great man, and Walter Matthau was as hmm. well. They, hmm. they they made a wonderful uh, team.
0: They had they had not, s- not just
2: as actors, but as human beings.
0: No, well, it seems like it seems to me from just a a viewer's perspective, they had some serious depth to
2: them. They were very deep, yeah. and and very kind, and very gentle. You know, that those were the I mean, they were the gentlemen of a different uh, generation.
1: Of yeah,
0: folks, yeah. You know. Who were you closest to on the set of Mash?
2: Larry Linville. Okay. Larry was uh the kind of guy that you could talk to about anything. Uh he was non-judgmental and he
0: was, This is this is Frank Burns. Yes.
2: Okay. And he was very intellectual and and very very well read. He he was a a, a very special kind of uh guy and he was an unassuming intel, intellect. You know what I mean? He didn't uh he didn't throw it around. He wasn't an elitist and not, not that anyone else was, but Larry was a very special guy and and he had a warmth and a wonderful uh, sense of humor. And
0: Boy, th- I mean, that's good acting, because his character drove me bonkers.
2: I know, I know. And and we, we owe him a great debt of gratitude for playing that character that was exactly the opposite of who he really was.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, reports are that you were fairly close with uh, Colonel Henry Blake, McLean Stevenson. Very
1: close, yeah.
0: He, he uh, paid you a brilliant tribute. He said you were the best actor on MASH.
1: Well, he has excellent t-
2: <laughs>
0: yeah. now unfortunately McLean, uh stevenson died of a heart attack i think in was it 96? Well he died of
2: heart failure uh he was uh, he was going in for exploratory surgery for bladder cancer and he died uh, uh, unexpectedly during the surgery and it was a, a terrible tragedy for all of us
0: quite a quite a loss
2: yeah a great uh, again a great human being you know the, the kind of guy who would who gave many years of his life for others you know he was uh the national spokesperson for the national burn association for, hmm. uh, raised uh, millions of dollars
1: for burn victims children
0: most wow uh well at the end of the third year i understand there was that whole keeping the script secret thing uh in, in regards to how henry blake was going to be you know sort of well i guess his plane had been shot down and no one knew on the set is that right until right near the last minute
2: that's absolutely right um Mac and I had just finished the scene that they had originally written, which was a scene in which he says goodbye to us and and uh and we were actually leaving the set uh it was the last show of the season, and we were leaving the set to go get dressed for the christmas party and while the rest of the cast was involved in. Uh, that other scene that you actually saw in the O.R.
0: Mm, yeah, sorry. it was in the O.R. You came in and read everybody the telegram, right? Right,
2: and as Matt, uh, McLean and I were walking off the set, uh, Gene Reynolds and Larry Gilbart were walking on with a piece of paper in their hand and said, listen, guys, we want to just detain you for a second and show you an alternate scene that we uh, decided we want to shoot. Uh, we haven't decided we're going to air it yet, but we want to shoot it. And I, uh, we both read it. And uh, I took McLean aside and I said, you know, uh, this is a, it's kind of a painful scene. I mean, if, you know, your character gets killed off, that means that you can't change your mind and come back and so on and so forth. Uh, and I said to him, I said, you know, at the risk of you know, the, the being uh, unfaithful to the rest of the company, I won't do it if you don't want me to do this. I'll refuse to do it. And he said, no, don't you understand what they're doing? They're keeping their promise to us which was that uh, MASH would never be the kind of sitcom, if you can call it that, uh, that forgets that it's about a real war. And every opportunity that we have to show the reality of war, we will. And and for McLean Stevenson's character, Henry Blake, which was a much-loved character, to actually die as much-loved people actually did in the Korean War, uh, was a keeping of that promise. And it was uh, it, it, it was a promise of great integrity that uh, Larry Galbart and Gene Reynolds fought for, uh, not only for themselves, but for all of us, mm. because we, we had that
1: agreement.
0: Well, it was very, very well done, very moving. My son, and I actually just saw that the other night, as I said uh, earlier in the show, uh, he just went out to Walmart and bought a 25-series uh, MASH party pack, and uh, 15 years old, he's a big fan.
2: That's happening, you know, all over all over a new generation is is discovering it and the neat thing is that they they all tell me well i I say all but many people come up and say you know it's one of the few shows that i can watch with my mother and father yeah yeah, you know and and we all enjoy it together there aren't too many things on television today that you can do that with i remember that the the old steve allen show Uh, steve allen was another man that i respected greatly and and uh because he brought not only inter- great entertainment but also intellect to television. Mm. And uh at the simultaneously by the way. Mm-hmm. And uh uh but I can remember watching Steve Allen show with my mom and dad and all of us laughing and rolling on the floor <laughs> uh with laughter and, and I think it's very important that, that television understand that that we need shows like that. Oh, we
0: that sure do. That the whole do.
2: family can enjoy together, sure and we do. can actually maybe even derive something
0: from it. Sure do. I remember, I have great memories of my father and I uh, watching Flip Wilson mm-hmm. together, you know. and uh, Now listen, uh, Gary, why did you leave just after the start of the eighth season?
2: Well, I actually left uh, at the end of the seventh season, and they asked me back to do the fin- my final episode in the eighth season. But... Uh, I, I had many reasons for leaving. Number one, my contract was up, and I had done seven years, and seven years is a long time to do a television series. And, sure. Uh, I I could have made a great deal of money by renegotiating that contract because, as you know, it was a very popular character. And, but the the money wasn't the issue. Uh, the The issue with me was I had just. Uh, achieved at that time a 25-year career that took a great deal of struggle and a great deal of concentrated um, focus on succeeding as an actor and becoming established as an actor, and forsaking a lot of other things in life that were of equal or even greater importance, like being a father or being closer to my roots. And uh, just living in New York and Los Angeles, although I'm very grateful to those cities for my career, you know, for my career achievements and my education, uh, it wasn't my roots. Mm. And I just needed to get out into the world and become uh, myself again.
1: Uh, I don't know how I can say
0: that more clearly. Well, but you know what? The rest of us who've never experienced Hollywood, we we get that. We understand that. I mean, well, just because good. just because you're not in Hollywood. I mean, I, I talk to a lot of CEOs who feel the same way. They're 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 missing the more important things. And there's just so, only so many hours in the day. And when I, in order to be quote successful in the world, that requires time, and something else has to give. And quite oftentimes, it's family.
2: Well, family to me became. Around that period, the most important thing, you know, I, my, my marriage, my first marriage was breaking up, and we had a daughter, our, my beautiful daughter, Gina, and she was only four years old. And one of the reasons why it was breaking up was because I was not as available as a father because of the hard work schedule that I had just, you know, done for seven years uh, being contracted to a studio and and that doesn't stop you know when the work stops the the same thing uh all also is uh, is difficult because whenever you go out as a family uh, you you are always being torn from family to having to deal with public rec- recognition mm. and uh and the marriage was breaking up in large part because of that and it was extremely painful uh not only for me but also for our little girl and uh, uh i just decided that uh, it, uh well i asked myself the question am i am i living to work or am i working to live is is my work going to benefit my family life or is my family life going to have to be subservient to my work and i decided that i was that i was working to live and that my role as a daddy was much more important than anything else in my life.
0: Good, good, job. You know what? That is such a passion of mine, speaking with fathers around the world. I read a statistic recently that said the average father spends uh, uh, approximately three quality minutes a day with their kids.
2: It's amazing. It's amazing. I've read statistics like that, too. And although I never spent that little amount of time with my children, even when I was working, uh, I think that it, I think that fathers really don't spend uh, enough time with their kids. But I went instantly overnight when I left Mash. I went instantly uh, over to being a 24-hour available dad, hmm. 24 hours a day. In fact, I had my daughter for the first year. We, I was a single parent with her for the first year, and we moved back to uh, Connecticut to our, my little cabin on the lake in Connecticut. And, I, I, the reason why I say that is because uh, there's a, a funny story. Uh, Gina, being four, would go to bed uh, at 8 o'clock at, at night, and I would spend the rest of the night cleaning up, you know, being a new single parent. Uh, I would clean up and get the house and everything ready for the next day, you know. <laughs> uh, I was I was kind of taking parenthood very seriously. And uh, 5 o'clock in the morning, she'd come in and nudged me. She'd wake up, and she'd come in and nudge me and to let me know that she was up, and I had only had about two hours sleep. Oh. So after about five mornings, uh, being this new uh, single parent, I opened one eye, and I said, Gina, we can't do this anymore. You have to play with your toys in your room until Daddy wakes up in the morning, uh, or otherwise I can't be a good Daddy. And yeah. she said, okay, and she turned around and started to walk out of the out of the room, and as she got to the door, I said, unless it's an emergency, and she said, okay, remember, she's four years old, Yeah. okay, so the next morning at five o'clock, she's there nudging me, and she's kind of leaning on the edge of the bed with a big grin on her face, and I opened one eye, and she said, is a bat in the toilet an emergency, <laughs> <laughs> and I ran into the bathroom, and here was a bat doing the side stroke in the toilet. And she had sat down on the toilet and looked down between her legs, and there was this live bat doing the sidestroke. Oh man! Uh, you know that memory is one of the greatest yeah. memories, and uh, you know that that I've ever had in my life.
0: Yeah, well, you, and she quite possibly saved you from one of the worst memories you would have had in your life if you happened to go and sit down on the toilet later that morning. That would have no, been—that's true. That would have been a very, very bad memory. You
1: well, know bats are very beneficial
2: <laughs> animals, but not in the toilet.
0: No, that's right.
2: Well, after after you left
0: Mash, I understand that you actually turned down a role on Newhart.
2: I did. That's the only one that I regret turning down. I had numerous roles offered me, but Bob Newhart is another one of those great, wonderful gentlemen, and just a great person to work with. Hmm. Uh, yes, there are wonderful human beings in Hollywood, and he's one of
1: them. Wow! Wow! And
2: I really miss. I really was, it was very unfortunate. They offered right after I moved back to Connecticut, right after I set up housekeeping with my kid. Yeah. I got that offer.
0: Oh, yeah. and so you. Hollywood's
2: a funny place, you know. The minute you decide to leave, the offers come pouring in. Yeah, I don't, I, I've never understood <laughs> it, but that's the way it is.
0: Really? And so here's the, I mean, this is the crux of the situation. You've just made this decision to be a better dad, made the big move. And all of a sudden, the big offer comes in, and, ooh, you know, that must have been, was that tempting in the least?
2: It was the most uh, tempting of all the offers that I had, uh, simply because working with Bob would have been a great pleasure. Sure, sure. Also, the people that he surrounded himself with, you know, that crew and those those people, you know, uh, uh, perform, uh, people of light attract other people of light. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's Another thing I learned through the, the growth of my religion.
1: Sure. Know.
0: Well, we saw you later on Hollywood Squares. You're in Match Game a lot, though, weren't you?
2: Oh, a lot. And Gene Rayburn. Yeah. Remained my one of my best friends. Really? Until, until
1: his passing a few years ago. Yeah.
0: Were you on Wonder Woman? Yes. Well, Kate, okay. can I just can I just talk to you about Linda Carter just for a minute, please? Go ahead. Oh my goodness, she was my first love. No kidding. Yeah, Linda Carter.
2: She was some kind. Of, she is some kind of woman really yeah she's a very beautiful woman
0: how about the battle of the network stars
2: how about that did you do that i did that oh, <laughs> a couple of times
0: i remember watching those things and i i was engrossed by that stuff cuz you guys were doing like tug of war stuff and we you were ma-
2: doing everything we were doing golf and tennis and and uh, you know track and uh, all, all kinds what, of what stuff what did you do in that gary i, I, I don't remember
0: no it was, it was like... i remember
2: the tug of wars when we lost you know the cbs team was leading The whole way, and then they had this uh, winner-takes-all tug-of-war, which was, to me, the silliest thing, because that was just plain brawn, you know, uh, without any skill. But the CBS team really uh, was winning hands-down in just every event, until the tug-of-war
1: came along.
0: And And you lost. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry about bringing that up. Yeah,
2: I mean, I, you
1: shouldn't have brought that up. Years
0: yeah. of therapy has I just destroyed it right yeah, there. Yeah,
1: yeah, right. I'm going to call my therapist. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. Dean Dean Martin show Love American Style. I mean, you seriously? I'm am, I'm am just amazed at how much post mash stuff that you were involved with. It was it, well, it
2: wasn't post mash. It was pre mash and and during mash and and post mash.
0: Really, all throughout it all.
2: Yeah, there were there were there were. There were nights when I could turn on any of the three networks, and I was on all three of them
0: oh, that's scary
2: it was it was the, and the telephone was ringing every three minutes, and I mean that you could clock it you, I could look at my watch and the phone would ring every three minutes in my home. That's how uh consuming the career was and how and what an intrusion it was on family life.
0: Wow, wow, now I just don't think any of us will ever understand that. Uh, Fred Astaire and the man in the Santa Claus suit. What was it like working with Fred Astaire? Oh, the
2: best, the best. You know, I, I you know, I, I sound like Pollyanna here, but you're just mentioning, you know, Dean Martin was another great gentleman. Uh, you, you're, you're, meant, and so was Sammy Davis. You know, I mean, these were great people, to, not only to work with, but to know. They were great human beings. Uh, you just happen to be mentioning all the creme de la creme. You know, the, the people that I just was so uh, honored to work with. I'll tell you about Fred Astaire. Here's the kind of guy he was. Um, we were doing a scene in the Man in Santa Claus suit on location in New York City in a uh, in a jewelry store, little jewelry store on a side street on the West Side. And uh, on a break, uh, one of the assistant directors came in and said, uh, "Mr. Astaire, uh, the, the New York Press has discovered that you're here." and uh, they would like, you now. this is the New York Times we're talking about, yeah. and, you know, the big papers that are read worldwide. Sure. And, you know, any actor would die to have this kind of publicity. And, <laughs> and, uh, and they said uh, they would like to interview you outside on your break if it's all right. And he said, he said yes, I'd I'll, I'll be happy to, but only under one condition, that my co-star accompany me.
0: That's classy. And
2: he made sure that every picture that was taken was with him with his arm around my shoulder. And uh, that's the kind of guy Fred Astaire was.
0: That is so classy. Wow.
2: Well, so classy from a great genius. You know, this was a great, uh, a, you know, one of the great 20th century geniuses. Uh, and a person who was, you know, he was a legend. Hmm. But he was a warm man,
1: I guess.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, you were just talking about New York, New York City. Um, after you graduated high school, I think did you, you moved to New York to study acting. I think with Sandy Meisner, James Tuttle, Charles Nelson Riley.
2: That's correct. Yeah. James Tuttle was a great, great teacher. He he taught Sanford Meisner's method, but he taught it with great humanity, hmm. and uh, he, he was a great teacher. And and he was my he was my mentor. And uh, and so was Charles Nelson Riley, by the way.
0: But you, you must have had a few jobs on the side just to survive. What, were you, what kind of part time jobs do you have? I, mean... I
2: worked uh, I worked as an usher in a movie theater. I sold underwear at Fifth Avenue. <laughs> uh, and I and I played drums in in, a, in a, a, several bands, you know, in little night spots around around New York. The We Three. Yeah, that's not uh, that wasn't uh, that was a little. Uh, a trio that I had, but I also played in, uh, you know, other other bands.
0: And uh, you performed in a variety of musicals until I think in 1967 you were finally cast in an off-Broadway production, which ended up being the linchpin for your career in Hollywood.
1: That's correct. Yeah, Your Good
2: Man Charlie Brown.
0: You played this character over a thousand times over three years.
2: And it's a it's a great example of how God works. Uh, you know, you do the work, and you you follow. The passion that God put into your heart and you fail and you fail over and over and over again. But while you're failing, fail, failure being only part of the process of succeeding, uh, God is saying, just wait, be patient. When, it, when the time is right, I'll drop it right in your lap and everything will be fine. And what happened was two years before Charlie Brown was even a reality, uh, I did uh, an audition with a, a young actress uh, by the name of Barbara Minkus. When I say with her, we just showed up for the same audition for two, two different roles, of course. Right. And, uh, and the, the, the accompanist that was provided by the producer of that audition could, wasn't really playing my arrangement with the feel that I needed uh, for it to be played with. He was not a jazz musician. So frantically, I went to the telephone, and I called a friend of mine in the music business. I said, can you send me somebody who can play my jazz arrangement for this audition? I've only got about 45 minutes uh, before the audition. And my friend said, I will send you the best accompanist in New York. I didn't know who the accompanist was, (laughs) but about uh, 35 minutes later, the door opened, and in walked a blind man with a seeing-eye dog.
0: Oh, get out of here. No.
2: And his name was Joel Schumann. He spoke with a thick Scottish accent, and he hollered out in the room, "Is there a Gary off here?" And I, I said, "Yes, over here." And the dog turned and brought him right to me. I was standing next to the piano. He says, "What are you doing?" And I said, uh, "You're going to hear from me." He says, uh, "Do you, do you uh, change to E flat in the second car? And I said, "Yes." Now he, he, you know, he was blind, and I, I had an arrangement. <laughs> He played that arrangement better. He became my accompanist after this, but he played that arrangement better than it was written he, because he listened so well. You know, being an accompanist isn't is an art form all its own. Well, anyway, two years later. Now, remember, I didn't know the man was blind when I when I called my friend to ask for an accompanist. Two years later. Barbara Mingus is signed to play Lucy in Your Good Man Charlie Brown, yeah. which was just forming, and they were having trouble finding Charlie Brown. And she says to the producers, "You have to get this actor, by the name of Gary Burghoff. He is so pure-hearted that he hires the handicap, <laughs> the handicap for <laughs> for for his audition."
0: <laughs> oh, gee whiz.
2: And and it wasn't true, of course, at all. But this is the way the oh, Lord man. the Lord works. You see,
0: that is a classic story. Yep. Here's a little treat for you. Tell me if you remember this.
1: You're a good man, Charlie Brown. You're the kind of reminder we need. You have humility, nobility, yes. and a sense of honor that are very rare indeed. How
0: scary is that?
2: that's that what
0: that's uh, that's off your just production
2: back a great memory that was uh that that was a great great time in my life because everything that i had struggled for for over six years up to that point uh and all of the so-called failures you know the the, the auditions that i didn't uh, get a, a role from and all of the struggle and everything was over and after that show opened, I had uh, a 36-year career wow. ahead of me. Uh, the the tie-in between Charlie Brown and MASH was when, you see, all of a sudden, all of the great people in our industry were coming to this little theater off-Broadway to see this show that the critics had absolutely raved about. And their one night was was the very famous, uh, movie director Otto Preminger, mm. and uh, a day after he saw the show, he, he had his office at the Columbia Building in in New York uh, call me uh, to come in to talk about his future film projects um, uh, with the, with the hopes of finding a role for me. Well, the the, the interview went very well, and uh, but nothing nothing came from it. Until a year later, when I was performing Your Good Man Charlie Brown in the Los Angeles company, I got a call from my uh, agent saying that uh, Ingo Preminger, who I didn't realize at the time was related to Otto, was producing a new film called MASH, which nobody knew what it was, by the way. Really? Yeah, uh, it was a little-known... It was You know, they had optioned a little-known novel, and he had hired uh, a director who was just really a rising star, Robert Altman, at the time. And uh, and I went in to see Ingo Preminger, and without even auditioning or reading, I I got the role of Radar. And it wasn't until after we had actually shot the film that I, it's, I was suddenly, uh, you know, I was thunderstruck, realizing that Otto had recommended me to his little brother, Ingo, oh, uh, to play the role of uh, Radar. So it was Otto Preminger that really... Uh, was responsible for bringing my career into into the public
0: so it all started uh, it all started with your good man charlie brown that 's
2: correct well
0: folks listen we 're on the phone here with mr Gary Berghoff uh, known as radar from mash but also known as Charlie Brown from uh, off Broadway production you 're a good man Charlie Brown Have a little listen and see if you can uh, recognize this voice <laughs>
2: Skill, little less luck, little more will, gotta face this fella eye to eye. Now that I've seen you chasing moles, climbing trees, digging holes, wrapping your string on everything,
1: passing by, why
0: Mr. Gary Berghoff as uh, Charlie Brown.
2: It was amazing. Uh, that production only cost the producers $19,000 to produce. And it was done with simplicity. Everyone said that it couldn't be done, uh, taking, lifting these characters, which were so real in the imagine, imaginations of, of so many millions of readers, from the page of their local newspapers, and placing them with real-life actors on the stage they all thought that we would try to be cute and coy and go for the obvious laughs and so on and so forth. Instead of playing the essence of first discovery, which basically is what we were playing. But, uh, Joe Hardy, the director, uh, knew how to cast experienced actors who knew how not to be like that, not to be coy, not to be cute and to play, play it for real, uh, play it, play the essence of first discovery. And, um, and he pulled it off, hmm. and uh it 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 was just the most wonderful time in my life.